We're starting in Exodus 4. Would you please rise in honor of this reading of God's holy and inerrant word? Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt. For all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, 
Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off his son's, her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for the word that was just read, and now we do pray that you, by your Spirit, will give us understanding, and that your Spirit will also prepare our hearts to receive whatever word you have to say to us. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. I think one of the most striking things about Scripture is the way that it brutally, it paints a brutally honest picture of even its heroes. It really doesn't try to hide any of their flaws or failures. And I think this morning's passage, as just read, is a great example of that. It reminds me uh, of the story about a court painter who was commissioned to draw a portrait of Oliver Cromwell, a man who was known to have many warts all over his face. And so the painter as he was drawing, omitted all of the warts in the portrait, assuming that that would please him. But when Cromwell took a look at it, he was disgusted. And he said, take it away and paint me warts and all. And I feel like that's exactly what the Bible is doing this morning. It's refusing to whitewash its heroes. Scripture is not ashamed to paint them with warts and all. And if you really think about it, that should encourage you. That should strengthen your confidence in the Bible's truthfulness. Because tradition tells us that Moses himself was the author of Exodus. And so that means you have the author himself willingly including all of his warts when he's recounting the events that, in which he took a significant part. And so these, these stories we're reading here, they're not puff pieces. Like Exodus is not hagiography. Books like Exodus are true accounts that record the good and the bad when it comes to the behavior and attitude of God's servants. And so that's why I think we should be encouraged to read in our passage a very honest account of Moses' hesitancy to take up the Lord's call to return to Egypt, to confront the most powerful figure on the planet in his day, and to lead God's people out of slavery. I understand why he's hesitant. I think, honestly, if we were asked to do the same thing, we would be equally hesitant. We would probably come up with many of the same excuses that we read of in here. And so that's what Moses is doing, right? In, in chapter 4, he is, he is receiving a unmistakable, undeniable call from the Lord earlier in chapter 3. Uh, last week we, we saw how out of the burning bush that did not burn came a voice to him, a voice that belongs to God himself. And God told Moses that I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. And Moses' initial objection in chapter 3 verse 11 is to question, who am I? 
Lord, who am I that I should be tasked with such a great task? Well, as we saw last week, God actually didn't answer that question. He actually turns the question around. Who are you, Moses? No, no, no. God says, the question you should be asking is, who am I? Who am I who sends you? That, Moses, is what you should be asking. And that's really the next exchange, right? Moses then says, okay, so who are you? What do I say if they ask me what your name is? And here is where God famously reveals his divine name. He tells Moses, I am the great I am. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. They're all referring to the same name here. In most English Bibles, if you're looking at your Bible, uh, if you see the word, the, uh, the Lord, written in, in all caps or small caps, it's a reference there to the name Yahweh, or sometimes it's in some older translations, it's spelled Jehovah. Quite literally, it means I am. Now, what does that tell us about God? What did Moses learn about God's essence or character through that name? You ask who I am, God says, I just am. He just is. And for God to say, I am who I am, is to suggest that his essence and his character is self-determined. I am who I am. I am not measured against anyone or anything. I am the self-existing, self-sufficient God of all. That's the one calling out of the burning bush. That's the one calling Moses, sending him on this mission. And yet, yet Moses at this point is still unsure about himself. He's unsure about his readiness. He's unsure about his worthiness to play such a role in the plans of the great I am. And so he has three more reasons why, three more excuses why God has the wrong guy. Three more, three more reasons why he should send someone else. And again, like I said, I think if we were in his shoes, we would act in a very similar way. And actually, you know, in many ways, we, we actually are in his shoes. Because just like Moses, God is calling us, is he not? Is he, he's calling us on mission in similar fashion. He wants us to proclaim his good news of freedom for the captive, freedom for those enslaved in sin and all of sin's consequences. So he's calling us as well to leave the comforts of our Midian and to go to Egypt, to go to the hard place where people have hard hearts and where they won't listen to your message unless God moves within them in some mighty way. And so for you, that hard place, it could be your own family. It could be your own home. That hard place could be your campus. The hard place could be your workplace or just some place here in our vast city or maybe in a distant land. Friends, the great I am is calling you. And you might be unsure about your readiness. You might be unsure about your worthiness and your ability to do whatever it is he's calling you to do. Maybe like Moses, you're hoping he'll eventually send someone else. So church, I want to show you four ways in which God works through the unexpected in the hopes of encouraging you and strengthening your resolve to heed the call of the great I am to go wherever it is He's sending you to go. 
And so we're going to see four things. If you want to pull out your um, outline and your bulletin, you'll, you'll see these four things listed out. We're going to see the Lord first work through the ordinary. Second, we're going to see him work through the reluctant. Third, he's going to work through the obstinate. And fourth, he's going to work through the disobedient. And I hope this all encourages you knowing that we fall in at least one or more of those categories. So let's begin by considering the amazing way in which God works through the ordinary. And where I really see this in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Moses is, is real quick to reply, uh, questioning if anyone is actually going to believe that he met the Lord with a burning bush. Right? He's, he's really wondering, is anyone going to actually believe that you are the one who sent me on this mission? So listen to what he says in verse 1. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. So Yahweh, God, graciously gives him three signs by which Moses can perform and, and to confirm to others that he truly was sent by the great I am. The first of the signs involves his shepherd's staff. Remember, at this point, he's taken up the profession of shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. And so Yahweh tells him to throw that staff on the ground, and suddenly, before him, it becomes a serpent, a probably frightening, poisonous, venomous serpent to the point that he just runs away scared. Well, the fact that God chose a serpent, a dangerous serpent, is significant because serpents, if you think about it, in Egyptian culture represent royal authority. You ever been to, you know, just even the Natural Science Museum here, or if you especially if you've been to the British Museum in London, you can just kind of picture all of those headdresses of the pharaohs and how you might see a cobra either imprinted or molded onto those headdresses. And it's very common within Egyptian, ancient Egyptian culture. It symbolized the authority of the king. And so when, when the Lord tells Moses to grab the serpent by the tail, which, of course, is extremely dangerous. No one actually picks up a serpent by the tail. They always do it by the neck. But by, by saying boldly, grab it by the tail, God is signifying that you have nothing to fear. I have authority over the most powerful ruler on the planet. Grab it by the tail. And not only does he have power, God has power and authority over the most powerful ruler on the planet, really, he reigns over all powers within the spiritual realm. Because if you think the only other instance earlier in Scripture that mentions a serpent is in Genesis chapter 3, right? With the garden where you have the devil, devil appearing in serpentine form. And so, you know, this sign here is, is confirming that God has a, a, a appeared and commissioned Moses. And it communicates to Moses and to us that you can trust God, that he has, he has, he has got your enemies by the tail. All of your enemies Physical and spiritual, God has them by the tail. Next, the Lord will use uh, for a sign not just the staff, but also the hand that wields the staff. And he tells Moses to place his hand inside his cloak, and when he takes it out, his hand is leprous 
as snow. And he tells him to put it back in again and take it out again, and now it's suddenly whole. And the sign is demonstrating that God has the power to heal or to harm. And that really serves as, on one hand, a comfort to God's people, but also a warning to his enemies. Now, if you continue on in verse 9, Uh, The Lord says to Moses, hey, if they're not going to listen to your voice, if they're not going to listen to these two signs, then do this. Take some ordinary water from the Nile, pour it out onto the dry ground, and see what happens. And he does it and becomes blood. Now, that's obviously going to be a precursor for the first of the ten plagues that we're going to read about later. But just think here with me about what turning the Nile into blood should signify at this point in the story. It really serves as a witness against Egypt and all of their guilt for when they carried out Pharaoh's wicked policy of throwing Israelite sons into the Nile. So just as Abel's blood cried out from the ground in the same way the blood of these baby boys spilt out onto the dry ground is now crying out against Egypt and against its king. And so with these three signs, Moses realizes God's got it covered. His excuses that no one's going to believe him, it just doesn't hold any water. And so in verse 10, he appeals to his own limitations. Look at verse 10 again. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, you know, some take that to mean that Moses had a stutter, and that is possible, but I think a more likely interpretation is that he's just saying, I'm not eloquent in speech. He's just saying, I'm not an orator. I'm not a preacher. Lord, you want me to be your spokesman? I'm not a good speaker. You have the wrong guy. And to that objection, God patiently reminds Moses that you are worried about your slow tongue when it's the God who made that tongue who is sending you out on this mission. God says, look in verse 12, now go, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. That's a beautiful image, is it not? Of God being with our mouths, shaping our lips, moving our tongue, putting in our mouths the very words that He intends for us to speak. And so the signs, the signs here were clearly intended for Moses' audience, right? So that they could know that it truly he is sent by God. But, you know, these signs here, I think they're meant also to speak to Moses. And they're to speak to all of his feelings of inadequacy. Just think about it. A staff? A hand? A pitcher of water, these are ordinary things. God is showing to Moses that he can work through the merely ordinary to perform the extraordinary. And so the Lord is not limited by our limitations. He is not hindered 
by our ordinariness. You know, according to Scripture, God's power is actually made perfect in our weakness, in our ordinariness. That means the glory of his power is actually magnified when displayed through weak and ordinary vessels. He loves to use jars of clay like us in order to, quote, show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 7. And so if God were instead to have taken a golden scepter that, let's say, it was a scepter wielded by all the kings of Egypt, and if he was to turn that into a serpent, well, then some might assume, hey, there must be something really cool and special about that scepter. And that's why God didn't use something so, so um, glorious in order to perform his sign. He chose an ordinary stick in order to demonstrate clearly that the surpassing power is not found in the stick. It's not found in the man who's holding the stick. It's found solely in God, the one who calls and sends. So this is amazing, friends. Moses' staff, that you would admit, is just ordinary. But when it's in the hands of God, it becomes the mighty staff of God. A staff is just a staff, but you give it to God, it becomes something more. Look with me in verse 20. If you look in verse 20, notice how it's identified in a new way, is it not? It says, Moses took the staff of God in his hand. It used to just be a stick, a stick that he would whack some sheep with. And now it's the staff of God. You put it in God's hands, it becomes more. And so I think in the same way, you can say a mouth is just a mouth. But when you give that mouth to the Lord, it becomes the mouth of God. And so I know some of you, like Moses, you don't think you're eloquent enough to share the gospel with people. You don't think you're good enough of a speaker or a teacher to instruct others in God's word. You know he is calling you to do it, right? You know it's, it's, it's as obvious as a burning bush. God says it plainly in his word that you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, that you're responsible to help to make and mature other disciples. You are to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And he has placed these people within your spheres of influence, people who don't know Jesus, people who don't know his word very well. And he wants you to speak. He wants you to tell them about Jesus, to, to teach his word to them. Now, I know you can try the excuse that you're not very eloquent, that, that you're not a natural speaker or teacher, that you're just an ordinary Christian. But as you can see here from Moses, that excuse is not going to hold up before God. God is going to say, I know. I know you're ordinary. I know it's not your strength. But if you give me your mouth, I will make it the mouth of God. 
I will be with your mouth. I will teach you exactly what to say when the moment arises. And everyone will know that the surpassing power comes from God and not from you. That's the very reason why God wants you to go and you to speak and you to trust that he'll be with you. So that's the encouragement that the ordinary can draw from our text. Now there's another group of people who should be equally encouraged, and it's the reluctant. And this leads to our second point here. God works through the reluctant. Uh, This point comes across in Moses' response in verses 12 to 17. You see, at this point, he's run out of excuses, and he just flats out tells God, I simply don't want to do it. I don't want to go. Uh, Let's look at verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Moses is reluctant. And it's likely because he still doesn't actually understand what God expects of him. He thinks that God in this scenario wants him to be a savior when really all God wants of Moses is for him to be a staff in his hand. Like, Moses thinks he's being called to be the man when God just wants him to be his mouth. At this point, I know it might sound like Moses has low self-esteem, but I would argue that actually he's a bit too full of himself. Like, he's thinking that God needs me to do such a mighty deed, to perform such a mighty task. But the truth is, God doesn't need him. God and his plan to deliver his people from Egypt is not riding on Moses. It doesn't depend on him. Just as Queen Esther was reminded in her story, if you choose to keep silent at this moment, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. God can raise up another. You are not indispensable. And yet, And yet, in his mercy, God did not dispense with Moses. He didn't replace him. He actually gave him a teammate. He sent his brother Aaron, who apparently can speak very well. And in verse 15, God explains how Aaron is going to function in relation to Moses. Look in verse 15. He says, you shall speak to him, Aaron, and put the words in his mouth, and I, God, will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So what's happening here is God is giving Moses an illustration of how he plans to actually work through him. So Aaron is is the illustration. Aaron, Moses, is going to be your spokesman. He's going to be your mouthpiece. He'll be your mouth, and you'll be like God to him. That's God basically saying, see, Moses, that's how I am going to work through you. Just as Aaron's job is is to just faithfully say whatever you say, Moses. In the same way, your job is to just be faithful to say what I say. That is how he is trying to address Moses' reluctancy. So first of all, he reminds Moses, you're not indispensable. Like God could just 
replace him with Aaron, right? I mean, Aaron seems to be a better speaker, seems to be a better choice. God could have just said, all right, Moses, forget you. I'm going with your brother. But no, that's not what God does. He mercifully still chooses to work with a very reluctant Moses, not expecting him to do the impossible, only expecting him to be that instrument in God's hands when God goes and does the impossible. And so, church, I, I think that's exactly how God is trying to address our reluctancy to go or to speak when he sends us. He's going to remind us, first of all, that, that we're not indispensable. His plans do, do not depend on us. Remember, he's the self-existing one. He is the all-sufficient one. Everyone else is dependent on something or someone else, the only one who is fully independent is the great I am. And I know that that might seem like God is very out of touch. He's so transcendent. He's so other. He's so distant from us. But the amazing thing that we see from this passage, the amazing thing that we experience in our own lives is how the God who doesn't need us still wants us. He wants us to participate in his plans. He wants us to work. He wants us to, he wants to work the impossible in the lives of others through us, mercifully forgiving our reluctancy rather than holding it against us. That's the God. That's the God who sends. That's the, that's the great I am that we see here. So, as we see, both the ordinary and the reluctant can draw a lot of encouragement from this passage. Now, there's another group. Another group that God works through. That's our third point. He works through the obstinate. The great I am is not limited by our limitations, by our reluctancy, and at the same time, he is not even limited by hardened hearts that refuse to listen to him. Pharaoh is the perfect example of just that. God accomplishes his will through the king of Egypt, even though his heart is hardened and he refuses to listen to God. Now, I realize when you get to verse 21, the text is a bit confusing because it sounds like it's God who's the one doing the hardening. So let me just read verse 21 again. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, let's just, let's just admit this is a very sticky theological issue that we're going to actually address in more detail when we get to the chapters on the ten plagues later on. But let me just make a few observations here. First, remember how God already predicted Pharaoh's refusal way back in chapter 3, verse 19. So if you want to turn there, in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so there in that verse, Pharaoh's refusal is portrayed to be his own decision, and God is the one who is going to have to compel him otherwise. But now back in our passage, chapter 4, verse 21, his refusal is attributed to the will of God. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So some are going to say, that is totally unfair. 
That is unfair. Why is God going to punish Pharaoh later on for not letting his people go when he's the one who hardens his heart so that he won't let them go? You know, that's a very good question. That's a legitimate question. That's a great question to be asking. Now, there are 10 verses in total here in Exodus where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So there's no doubt, there's 10 instances indicating that. No doubt that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But, friends, you have to realize that at the exact same time, there are also 10 other verses in the same chapters that suggest Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So we can speak of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and of Pharaoh hardening his own heart because both are equally true, and both are compatible statements. God sovereignly ordained Pharaoh's hard heart, and yet Pharaoh is morally responsible for his hard heart. That is completely consistent with biblical teaching that God is sovereign over all things, even our disobedience, And yet, humans are accountable for our actions, including our disobedience. These are definitely paradoxical truths, but what I would contend is that they are not irrational truths. To grasp how God is sovereign over your actions, and yet how you are still responsible for your actions, it is certainly mysterious, but not irrational. It would be, I admit, it would be a very different situation if Pharaoh's heart was inclined to listen, if his heart was inclined to let the people go, but then suddenly a sovereign God shows up and he changes his heart, keeping him from listening and letting the people go. If that were the case, then Pharaoh would have a legitimate gripe. God would be violating the freedom of his will. But the whole point, of having 10 verses saying Pharaoh hardened his own heart is to make clear that Pharaoh never wanted to listen to Moses in the first place. Yes, God hardened his heart, but not by forcing him to do something that he didn't already want to do. God sovereignly willed for Pharaoh to not listen, and at the same time, Pharaoh did not want to listen in accordance to his own will. We should hold both truths. We should hold both statements to be true because both are taught as true in Scripture. Now, but having said all that, I want to stress the real emphasis here. The real emphasis here on the sovereignty of God, even over the hardened and obstinate heart of Pharaoh, is this. The the point is meant to assure God's people that nothing can thwart his will, not even the stubbornness of man. I I love what it says in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Isn't that how God worked through Pharaoh? 
And if he can work through the stubbornness of the most powerful ruler on the planet, then friends, there is nothing that God cannot do. There is nothing and no one who can thwart his plans. And so perhaps for some of you, maybe you have a a boss, a supervisor, maybe a professor or someone like that in your life, making it difficult for you to live out your calling as a Christian, whether at work or in school. Because of their hardened heart towards God, they're discouraging you, or maybe they're just flat out disallowing you from being open with your faith. You should be praying for them. You should be praying for their salvation. But what this text wants to particularly encourage you with is for you to trust that God can make a way. God can work through your tough situation. That hard heart that is obstructing you from living out your calling as a believer is just a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. Just remember that he turns it wherever he will. Be encouraged by what you see here. Now, we've seen how God works through the ordinary, through the reluctant, through the obstinate. Now, our fourth and final point, we see how he works through the disobedient. Let's turn our attention to verse 24. And this has got to be, verse 24 to 26 has got to be the the most confusing few verses in all of Exodus. I think there's been so much ink spilt trying to untie some interpretive knots here in these verses. So just listen again to 24 to 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, so there like, are a few different interpretations of this verse. Now, obviously, I don't have time to cover all of them and the pros and cons here, but let me just offer what I think is the majority view of how to interpret what's going on here. That view would say that on the way back uh, to, to Egypt at a lodging place, the Lord sought to put to death Moses. That it's Moses' life on the line here. I know some think that it was one of his uncircumcised sons, uh, but the, the majority of you think it's Moses that was struck maybe with some kind of fatal sickness, and he's dying. And, you know, the reason is all because of his failure to circumcise his son, likely Gershom, his, 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 uh, his son that we were introduced to earlier. So now I'm sure you're wondering, wow, what's the big deal here? Like, why, why would his son's circumcision or the lack thereof, why would that be a matter of life and death? It feels like a bit of an overreaction. But you have to remember. You have to remember what circumcision signifies in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 17, God established circumcision as the visible sign of the covenant that he was making with Abraham and his line. So in Genesis 17 verse 14, it says this, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so when the Israelites, when they were circumcised, what they were saying is essentially, Lord, we will obey you. Lord, we will be faithful to your covenant. And if not, 
if we break covenant, shall, may, may we be cut off. Cut us off, O Lord. And the circumcision, that literal cutting off, dramatizes that curse of the covenant. It dramatizes the curse of sin, that you will be cut off from God. And so by failing to circumcise his son, Moses had broken covenant. Moses had incurred the curse. He was about to be cut off. But thankfully, his wife steps in. His wife takes a flint, circumcises her son, and, it, and then she touches. Some translations say that she throws the bloody foreskin at her husband's feet, calling him a bridegroom of blood. And God relents from killing Moses. Moses recovers, reunites with Aaron, and returns to Egypt to show the elders all the signs and to speak all the words of Yahweh to them. These are strange verses, I admit. And there are other ways of, you know, possibly interpreting it. But I think, regardless, these verses make one point very clear. The point is that breaking covenant with God is a serious matter. Disobedience to God's word is no small thing. It was very clear to Moses on that day that the wages of sin and disobedience is death. And as he looked down, just, just imagine him looking down at the ground, looking at the blood and the foreskin laying at his feet. He knew on that day without a doubt that without the shedding of blood, there truly is no forgiveness. He also understood that God's anger, that the curse was justly directed at him, and it really, it took the blood of another to satisfy that anger and to break that curse. In fact, it was the blood of his son shed in his place that saved him. Moses understood the gospel on that day, and that's what we need to understand. We have all broken covenant. We have not been faithful to the Lord. We have been disobedient. And yet, what this story is reminding us is that God is mercifully willing to work through the disobedient. Yes, friends, we can be forgiven. We can still be used by God to accomplish great things for God. But only because the blood of another was shed. Only because a substitute was cut off so that we could be grafted into a relationship with God, that we could still be included within his plans. There's this verse in Colossians where it says, it says that in Christ, Christians have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ. By the circumcision of of Christ? That's a strange verse because you're wondering how in the world is our salvation tied to Jesus's circumcision? But now with this even stranger story of Moses and his son's circumcision, I hope the dots are starting to connect for you. You see, when Paul says that our salvation is by the circumcision of Christ. He's not referring to the cutting off that happened to Jesus when he was an eight-day-old baby. 
No, he's referring to what happened to Jesus as an adult hanging there on the cross. On the cross, Christ experienced a cosmic cutting off. He was being cut off. He was being forsaken by the Father. He was bearing our curse, getting what we deserve. He became a bridegroom of blood to us, to the church, to the bride. You understand what this means? It means that your disobedience does not have to lead to a cutting off from God or a cutting off from being able to be used by God to do great things for God. I know some of you are very discouraged by your sinfulness, by your unfaithfulness, and you're thinking that you've blown it. There's no way God's there's no way God's going to either forgive you or there's no way God's ever going to use you in any significant way for his plans, for his name. And friends, this story is telling you, go to Christ. Go to your bridegroom of blood and let his blood cover you and cleanse you. Christian, what, what is the great I am calling you to do? Who is he sending you to go and deliver a message of deliverance to? Which injustices does he want you to stand up and to address? What authorities does he want you to confront? And I'm thankful that God actually did send someone else. He sent someone else to do what we could not do for ourselves. So that now, in Christ, we have all we need to do whatever it is that God calls us to do. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for how you are so willing to work with us even though we are so undeserving. We're ordinary. We're reluctant. We're sometimes obstinate. And we're disobedient. And yet, you mercifully have given us your son, Jesus. And by his blood, we are forgiven. By his blood, we are set free. By his blood, we are cleansed. And now you call us to be on mission with you and for you. So, Lord, comfort us, strengthen us, send us out from this place. In your great name, the great I am. In your name we pray. Amen.